Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, My name is uh, Elon Goldenberg. I run the Middle East uh, Security Program here at CNAS um, and wanted to welcome you to this uh, webcast, this joint uh, CNAS-CSIS webcast and project that we've been working on for the past year um, and uh, to really in today to preview a new report that we're releasing uh, titled Toward a More Proliferated World, um, which examines how what nuclear proliferation might look like in the age of sort of new um, global competition and great power competition. Um, So the report was written and led primarily uh, by our colleague, Eric Brewer, who's at at CSIS. Eric is uh, the deputy director of uh, the project on nuclear issues at CSIS uh, and also a senior fellow there. Uh, He previously served um, both at the National Intelligence Council uh, and at the National Security Council, and is, is an expert on nonproliferation issues and also some different regional nonproliferation issues. Um, and uh, I think what we're going to do today is uh, Eric will be first providing an overview of the report for a few minutes, um, and then we'll be having a great panel afterwards uh, with discussion and uh, reaction. What we're also going to do uh, as we have this conversation um, is uh, give you, the audience, an opportunity to uh, ask some, well, two things. One, we're gonna ask you some questions uh, and we're gonna have some polling questions throughout interactive polling questions uh, just to help spur on the conversation. And we're also gonna have an opportunity near the end um, for you to ask your questions. Uh, You can put the questions into the chat function um, or or Q&A function whenever uh, you would like um, and at, when we get towards the end of the discussion, I'll start fishing through them and, and tossing those uh, to our various panelists. Um, so before we get rolling, uh, why don't we put up the first polling question and give everyone an opportunity to weigh in. Um, and so the question is, you know, in your view, are the risks of nuclear proliferation increasing, decreasing, or staying the same uh, given the world in which we're living? So uh, I'll give everyone an opportunity to uh, answer that. I'll answer it myself here as well. Um, So we can play a little Jeopardy music if I had it, but we don't really have any Jeopardy music. Um, And maybe in a few seconds I can ask my uh, colleagues to throw up the uh, what the results look like as we uh, wait with bated breath. Oh, and here we go with the results. Okay, well 81% of people think that uh, danger, that the risk of proliferation are increasing, and one percent think it's decreasing. About twenty percent think the same. So that's a, you know, that's a, that's good. Although I guess you did like tune into this uh, webcast, so I'm not sure I would necessarily call this a scientific sampling. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's a good preview. I guess we're taking the issue seriously. So with that, let me kick it over to Eric to uh, walk you through some of the recommendations in the report. Thanks so much, Alon, and it's uh, it's a real pleasure to be here and to be launching this report. Um, it won't come as a shock that I think you know I I, I voted that they're increasing, and you know I, I would agree with sort of the the consensus there of the poll. Um, I do think it's important though to unpack why, right? Why does why do the majority of us think that these risks are increasing? And that's really uh, what the report tries to do, right? The report, as you as you noted, is really sort of a stand back assessment that tries to look at the big geopolitical trends that are going to shape the future proliferation landscape, um, as well as the US ability to manage, right? And so um, the way that I have sort of been thinking about this is is really an attempt to look at the proliferation forest rather than kind of the proliferation trees, right? We are looking over the long term, 10 plus years, rather than, than, you know, just in the next couple of years. And so we really wanted to, rather than focus on, um, you know, narrowly focus on specific countries, although we do, do evaluate uh, these trends against three cases, to really look at some cross-cutting themes that are, that are really gonna shape proliferation. Um, you know, why did we take this approach, right? Why did we wanna construct the study in this way? Um, I think for starters, there's been a lot of focus on uh, different types of technology and emerging technology and the impact that that has on 
nuclear weapons and um, strategic stability and, and proliferation, but a lot less sort of on uh, the geopolitics angle to this. There's also been a lot of focus on um, strategic competition and you know, the more competitive environment and what that means for a range of different issues. Um, in the nuclear realm, a lot of that focus has been on arms control, right? A lot less on what those very same geopolitical developments mean for proliferation and non-proliferation. So we wanted to write a report that sort of filled those gaps. And finally, I think, you know, we recognize we're at this moment of really a, a immense geopolitical change, right? The, the international order is evolving, the U.S. relationship with that order is evolving, um, challenges to U.S. influence are, are in some ways accelerating, um, and the U.S., you know, it's increasingly, I think, a relevant question whether or not the United States is going to advocate and support and defend that international order in the same way that it has in the past. And then as Alon alluded to earlier, the sort of the last kind of geopolitical trend is that more competitive security environment. Um, and so we wanted to look at um, what does proliferation look like in this world? And when we did that assessment, a few things stood out. Um, first, the U.S. has over time generally been successful um, at preventing the spread of nuclear weapons. Um, it's developed a pretty sophisticated um, toolkit um, over time, and that includes things like, you know, uh, treaties and multilateral mechanisms that can, you know, prevent the transfer of sensitive nuclear technologies. Um, you know, things like the nuclear suppliers group would fall into that category. Um, other things that sort of um, enhance the transparency of country nuclear programs, like the creation of the IAEA. Um, and then it's done other, other things as well, like extend the U.S. nuclear deterrent and put other countries under its nuclear umbrella so that they wouldn't feel motivated to develop nuclear weapons themselves. And finally, it's also developed a range of unilateral tools, for lack of a better word. And these, you know, this can range from everything from um, diplomacy to, uh, to, you know, diplomatic, to sanctions and to um, interdictions, for example. Um, and as a result, in the report we talk about, there are sort of, several things that will continue to work to the U.S. advantage. There are kind of several safe bets we can make um, going forward. And I'll just mention a couple of them here. Uh, one of them is that it's unlikely that any uh, major power, uh, that the government of those powers would transfer uh, sensitive nuclear technologies, particularly enrichment reprocessing technologies, um, which are critical to, to be able to get the fissile material for a bomb. They're unlikely to transfer those technologies uh, to any country that doesn't already have them, right? And that's a pretty um, significant, um, position to be in moving forward, right? Another one we look at is the value of the, uh, of the IAEA, right? Um, the agency that is charged with ensuring that countries' programs remain peaceful. That agency remains, um, you know, perhaps not perfect, but quite capable, um, and it's something that the United States uh, should continue to, to invest in. Um, but that's kind of the good news story, right? O on balance, though, we conclude that there are more reasons to, to worry uh, than there are to be optimistic. And specifically, we talk about and we identify seven trends that are going to um, shape that future proliferation landscape. And collectively, uh, we talk about how these trends are going to have three effects on that landscape. Um, the first one is that they stand to increase pressures on countries to develop, to develop nuclear weapons um, or related capabilities as a hedge. Second, uh, they challenge, they're gonna challenge the US ability to wield the, the sort of the traditional um, carrots and sticks of non-proliferation and counter-proliferation policy. And finally, um, they, they could put the US in a position where uh, non-proliferation goals are increasingly at odds or at least in tension with other strategic, strategic objectives like um, uh, you know, cooperating with allies against a, against a shared adversary. And I know we'll talk about these a little bit later as we get into the discussion. So let me, um, before we do that, let me quickly touch on each of these seven trends. The first trend that we see is uh, regional security environments are becoming more tense. And this, you know, this looks like Russia, China, and North Korea that are expanding and modernizing their nuclear arsenals. Um, Russia and China are um, in some ways, you know, uh, behaving more aggressively, and they've developed a range of sort of subconventional tactics. Uh, I think we just saw today uh, another attempt by Russia to use a CW nerve agent to assassinate a dissident. Um, so it's these types of things that are driving uh, insecurity in those regions. Um, also for Iran, right? Right now, Iran is decreasing its breakout timeline, but I think it's fair to say that um, even in even in a scenario in which we're able to get another deal or go back into the JCPOA. Um, Iran's likely to have some degree of latent capacity to produce nuclear weapons. So that's something that we're going to have to continue to grapple with. And so collectively, 
these threats make countries living in these regions nervous to varying degrees. And those concerns can become drivers for nuclear proliferation. The second trend we talk about is that US allies and partners are losing their confidence in the United States, uh, particularly the US security commitments. Why does, why does this matter, right? This is particularly worrying because history suggests that, that declining confidence is really an important ingredient for those allies and partners when they've decided to pursue nuclear weapons in the past. Um, and I think it's important to mention that, you know, this is not just about President Trump, right? Of course, you know, he and his administration, I would argue, have taken steps that have exacerbated some of these allied concerns, but it's not just about him and, you know, the um, allies and partners are concerned that a lot of these underlying sentiments are part of a broader um, shift in the American approach to engaging the international order and managing that international order. The third trend that we talk about is the rise of autocracies and specifically the rise of uh, personalist authoritarian governments, right? And the rise of these types of governments increases the risks of nuclear proliferation. Um, studies suggest these individuals are more likely than, than uh, other counterparts to pursue weapons. They face fewer domestic checks on uh, uh, covert nuclear weapons programs. And they also are, are, can be less encumbered by international norms against, um, uh, against nuclear weapons production. And it's particularly worrying because we see uh, several of these leaders in certain US allies and partners, right? Um, in Turkey, uh, in Saudi, um, uh, in Hungary, and elsewhere. And so um, this is just something that we're gonna have to watch moving forward. The fourth trend that we talk about is that the prospects for arms control measures that can further uh, reduce US and Russian nuclear weapons, as well as the prospects for measures that can cap or limit uh, growing global nuclear weapons arsenals, uh, you know, those in, in China, India, Pakistan, North Korea, um, and elsewhere, um, are going to, the prospect for that is frankly fading, right? It's, it's under a lot of strain. And this in turn is gonna strain the bargain at the heart of the, of the NPT by which uh, nuclear weapon states pledge to work towards disarmament and countries that don't have nuclear weapons pledged not to obtain them. Um, and at a minimum, this is gonna make it hard for the United States to pursue some of its non-proliferation goals particularly vis-a-vis -vis the, the NPT. The fifth trend that we talk about is that the ability of the United States to use civil nuclear energy sales uh, to advance its non-proliferation objectives is declining, right? So for decades, the US has used that ability to assist countries' civil nuclear programs, to sell reactors, to partner on civil nuclear energy issues, to, uh, to achieve non-proliferation goals by getting countries to um, accept certain restrictions over what they're going to do with those provided materials to accept, accept um, limits on uh, their, their ability to enrich and reprocess and to accept um, additional transparency measures such, such as the additional protocol. Um, and the U.S. has also used the same partnerships um, to, to threaten to cut off and to pull back that assistance when, uh, when one of those countries engaged in proliferation-related behavior. So as the U.S. share in that market shrinks, which, it's, which it is, and it's declining, and as Russia and China gain ground, it's going to become harder for the U.S. to write the rules of that game and to use that leverage for its non-proliferation goals. The sixth trend we talk about uh, deals with sanctions, right, which is, you know, a, an incredibly popular tool when it comes to both non-proliferation and counter-proliferation. And I think over time, uh, the effectiveness of those tools is likely going to diminish as countries develop ways to reduce their impact. And over the long term, um, and again, I emphasize this is, a, this is a long term trend, as US financial dominance erodes, right? Um, the overuse of sanctions is in some regards prompting countries to uh, undertake different ways to, uh, to basically insulate themselves from US economic warfare. And countries like North Korea are becoming more adept at, at avoiding and evading um, international sanctions through things like um, cyber theft. Um, and so, over time, uh, you know, sanctions are not going to be the easy button that they are today. And finally, the, the seventh trend that we look at is really the, really the relationship between non-proliferation and strategic competition, right? And we, we, we assess that, that increasingly that mistrust and that competitive environment is going to find its way into the non-proliferation realm. We've already seen it enter the arms control arena, but increasingly it's going to be difficult for the United States, China, and Russia to cooperate uh, on non-proliferation non issues. Um, and as I mentioned at the outset, there's an additional risk that this could complicate US non-proliferation objectives in the sense that um, if the United States finds itself in a scenario where it needs to keep allies on board uh, to confront a shared adversity, 
or it finds itself in a scenario where it's trying to bolster allied conventional capabilities or enhance burden sharing. Um, these could lead to scenarios where non-proliferation goals but could potentially take a backseat. And, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit later um, in the discussion. So the bottom line, um, Alon, before I turn it back over to you, is that on balance, the foundation on which US non-proliferation successes rest is eroding in a lot of ways and being challenged. Uh, and this is creating new proliferation pressures um, as well as challenging the ability of the United States to wield some of these traditional tools. And so the US is going to need, moving forward, it's gonna to need to recognize, recognize this, um, acknowledge this, and prepare for this new environment um, if it hopes to keep proliferation contained uh, in the future. All right, well, thank you, Eric. That was a, a really great um, summary. And you know, I encourage people to read the report, not only because I'm one of the co-authors, though Eric's the real brains behind this operation. Um, but um, I want to now turn to, and uh, I'll apologize slightly for uh, if, if you're hearing dog noises in the background, this is what happens when UPS rolls by, um, at least in the Goldenberg household. But I want to turn now to our discussion with, uh, with our panelists. Um, and we have two fantastic panelists who are joining us today, in addition to Eric. Um, one is uh, Dr. Rebecca Lisner, who is an assistant professor um, in strategic and operational strategies at um, at the U.S. Naval War College um, and has had very impressive resumes and numerous fellowships uh, before that position uh, and time as a deputy uh, or as a senior special advisor to a deputy secretary of energy. Um, and the other is uh, Vipin Narang, um, who is an assistant professor um, of political science at MIT. Um, and similarly, uh, um, Dr. Narang has a long record of, of various things in the bio that I'm not going to go into, but like two very super impressive people and just smart and fun that I also enjoy reading on Twitter and other things like that. And really great to have you both here with us um, in addition to Eric. So what we're going to do is first we're going we're gonna to throw up a polling question for the audience um, and then we're going to have our panelists respond to that. Um, so why don't we go ahead and throw up that first polling question. Okay, so the question is which of the following developments should concern the U.S. Uh, the most as potential drivers of nuclear proliferation over the next 10 years. And these are some of the things that Eric mentioned, you know, increasing security threats posed by Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran, um, declining allied trust and confidence in the U.S., uh, challenges to the NPT, um, or inadequacy of U.S. and international policy tools. So I'm going to give everybody a, a second to uh, respond, and I'm going to respond with my own answer. Throw that in there. Um, let our panelists respond as well. Let the, the Jeopardy, the pretend Jeopardy music can go for about like 10 or 15 seconds. And whenever our colleagues feel like they've got sort of enough answers coming in, maybe we can throw, uh, throw that up there and see what, what the audience thinks. Thanks for not making everybody sing along. Jeopardy <laughs> well, sing. Welcome. All right. <laughs> so, so actually what's interesting about this is a pretty uh, even distribution, I would say, among the four. Um, with uh, declining uh, sort of confidence in the U.S. Uh, coming in at number one, um, uh, and then probably like pretty solid second for uh, increasing security threats from Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. Um, but maybe uh, Vipin, I'll turn to you first uh, in responding to this and, and your thoughts on this question um, as well, and sort of how the audience has answered it. Yeah, thanks a lot, and thanks for having me, Eric. Uh, and Ilan, on this uh, webcast, it's a pleasure to be here. This is a topic near and dear to my heart um, because I think we are entering a new era and we're not equipped to deal with it, both intellectually and from a policy perspective. Uh, and I think the distribution, the even distribution across these answers suggests actually the answer is all of the above. Uh, and that's kind of the most terrifying answer because when you think about demand side for proliferation, why states want nuclear weapons, we're now seeing a confluence of pressures and the report does an excellent job. Seven trends pushing states uh, towards thinking about pursuing nuclear weapons. Uh, and it's been, you know, we've enjoyed over a quarter century, I think, of limited pressure for proliferation. Um, the, the credibility of US commitments and extended deterrence wasn't questioned by our staunchest allies. The security threats were held in abeyance for a significant period of time. It's true that India and Pakistan nuclearized and tested in 1998, but they were de facto nuclear weapons powers prior to the end of the Cold War. But now, you know, with North Korea's uh, missile and nuclear sprint since 2017 and this long saga 
basically for a quarter century since the end of the Cold War, North Korea, where North Korea got out of the barn, in a lot of ways provides a blueprint for a lot of the countries that we think may not have been able to get nuclear weapons, uh, the Syrias and Libyas and Iraqs of the world. Uh, and it, it, North Korea is kind of like the, the, the template and the, uh, the model now for every state, adversarial state that may want nuclear weapons. And so for me, it's this pressure for both allies and adversaries to now think about uh, nuclear weapons uh, that is a worrying trend. And in the background, we also have this, the, the renewed great power competition that the report uh, discusses. Uh, and that's a, da that's a much more dangerous world because you know, it, as the pressure for nuclear weapons uh, amongst allies uh, increases. It's, you know, the, the report goes in depth on South Korea, but, the, you know, don't forget about Japan and don't sleep on Germany either. Both countries uh, have long had very quiet, certainly capabilities to uh, pursue and develop nuclear weapons. Japan sits in this unique position within the NPT regime as a state that possesses reactor-grade plutonium on its own soil. Uh, and, you know, Germany would be a hop, skip, and a throw away from technically being able to do it if they ever decided to do it. So there are allies who, if they start questioning the reliability and credibility of U.S. extended deterrence commitments, uh, would both have the incentive and the capability to potentially pursue nuclear weapons. Uh, and in, we're seeing already in the Middle East, uh, both nominal allies like Turkey, uh, but also de facto friends like Saudi Arabia, explicitly saying that if Iran you know, puts itself in a position to, to consummate nuclear weapons acquisition that they will follow. I mean, MBS goes on 60 Minutes in March 2018 and says explicitly, you know, we'll get a nuclear weapon. Um, and, you know, we should talk about Saudi Arabia because I think we'll be dealing with Saudi Arabia for a while. Uh, and it won't be, uh, in my view, it won't come from the, from U.S. assistance. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about uh, a one, two, three agreement with Saudi Arabia and gold standards. I think this, the, the, the blueprint for Saudi Arabia is actually the Pakistani nuclear, uh, nuclearization. In the 1980s, Pakistan took advantage, advantage of American shelter and protection while we were uh, prosecuting the war in Afghanistan, the first war in Afghanistan, uh, and took advantage of Chinese assistance. Uh, and Saudi Arabia may be able to take advantage of Chinese assistance, Pakistani assistance, uh, and American shelter to essentially do what Pakistan did in the 1980s, to pursue and acquire nuclear weapons. And so we shouldn't sleep on Saudi Arabia either. Uh, and all of this is, you know, it's a worrying trend. We spent, you know, the last 30 years, if you, the, the, some of the most critical policy problems have been the states. We, we've had a few states that have tried to pursue nuclear weapons uh, and they've occupied so much bandwidth in American foreign policy, right? You can't look at Iraq 2003 without its long history of a clandestine nuclear weapons program. Iran occupied so much bandwidth from the Bush through the Obama administration and now uh, with the withdrawal from, from the JCPOA. Uh, we forget that in 2007, Syria, you know, Israel bombed a, a, a nuclear reactor whose sole purpose was to develop plutonium for nuclear weapons program. It wasn't plugged into an electricity grid. There were North Koreans running around the hinterland in Northern Syria, building a replica of Yongbyon. Uh, and the Israelis likely hit it a couple weeks before it was supposed to go operational. Uh, and, you know, that shows a brazenness that some of these clandestine nuclear weapons programs may have in the future that we may have to deal with more frequently that can really create foreign policy and international crises. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the declining reliability of American credibility and extended insurance commitments coupled with these regional pressures, I think, are the two major avenues that are, are going to create proliferation pressures. Uh, and the more proliferation pressure there is, the more we'll have to deal with clandestine nuclear weapons programs. We'll have to deal with decisions about, you know, do we make exceptions for certain allies and friends as we have in the past? Uh, and so I think we're entering a new territory in American foreign policy where we're going to have to contend with a lot more nuclear weapons programs than we have simultaneously, forcing us to make a lot of choices about, uh, you know, which nuclear weapons programs to focus on and which not to. So I'll stop there after that rant. Sorry. You know, this is this is only making me feel worse than I already was with this session. But um, let me like turn it over to to Rebecca, and also let me just ask you both, Rebecca and Eric, as you answer. Um, the number one, at least, uh, answer on this question was you know lack of faith in the United States or losing faith in the United States um, and reassurances. I mean, how much of that 
is reversible? How much of that is Trump? How much of it is broader than that? Eric was already talking about it being broader than that. Um, and other things we can do, um, you know, in, in that space in particular. Well, thanks so much to Alon and Eric, and congratulations on a really terrific report, which I would commend to everyone on this Zoom. It's really well conceived and well executed, and I think an exceptionally valuable contribution to this important debate and important set of policy issues. So I'm delighted to be here today to discuss it with them and with all of you. Um, I have to give the necessary caveat that, of course, everything I say or just represent my personal views, not DOD, the Navy, or the US Naval War College. Um, so to the question at hand, uh, Vipin sort of took the panelist prerogative in selecting E, all of the above, um, which wasn't actually one of the options that we all had. Um, so I'll try to uh, tailor my answer a little bit more narrowly and answer along the question that you just posed. And given the four options that we had, I chose B. Uh, and the reason for that basically is that I believe the US nuclear umbrella has been the single most potent non-proliferation tool of the past 70 years. But for all the reasons that Eric described and Vipin described, its credibility is increasingly being called into question. And precisely as the report argues, and some of my own work also argues, there's are two important long-term trends that are driving this decline in allied trust and confidence in the US and its security commitments. And unfortunately, neither of them really have to do with Donald Trump or with COVID, although both President Trump and COVID exacerbate each of them. So the first trend is long-term global power shifts. I don't think it will come as breaking news to anyone on this call that the United States tenure as the world's sole superpower has come to an end. China has enjoyed a meteoric rise powered by its economic growth and technological diffusion. And as a result has become a peer competitor to the United States and Asia with a concomitant desire to remake the Asian regional order uh, to suit its own power and preferences. And Russia, although in many ways a power in decline, remains quite powerful, especially in the nuclear space, which we are discussing today, and has modernized certain military capabilities that will make it harder for the US to come to the defense of its allies in Europe. And so in the context of non-proliferation specifically, what that means is that our allies in both Europe and in Asia are simply more vulnerable to regional great powers. Uh, that will become increasingly true as the US military advantage continues to erode, especially in Asia over the coming decade. But beyond that security vulnerability for both treaty allies and non-treaty partners of the United States, I think the end of American primacy also critically creates new exit options from the US-led security order, as both China and Russia can offer alternative sources of you know, security, but also things like nuclear assistance and potentially shield proliferators from some forms of punishment by, for example, running interference in the UN Security Council. And I can see these shifting power dynamics creating particular temptations for non-treaty partners like Saudi Arabia, which Vipin just mentioned, which doesn't explicitly enjoy many of the benefits of extended deterrence that a lot of the U.S. treaty allies do themselves have, that also face adverse political developments within the U.S. as the tides have sort of turned against the um, Saudi partnership in many quarters of Washington, and also a worsening regional security environment. So that's trend one is global power shifts, which I think echoes much of what Eric said. The second that I want to raise up is U.S domestic political dysfunction, which comes from years of increasing partisan political polarization, uh, which is increasingly infecting foreign policy, not just domestic policy, and also really the body blow of COVID-19, which together mean that the U.S. is operating well, beyond, well below its own capacity as a great power. And polarization in particular introduces a lot of volatility into American foreign policy as you know, policy switches pretty wildly as the White House changes hands between Democrats and Republicans. And it also undermines the United States' ability to make credible and stable commitments to allies and adversaries alike. And so insofar as the core bargain of extended deterrence is essentially outsourcing key elements of state security to the United States as a great power patron, I think we can expect to see allies much less willing to do so given growing eroticism of US foreign policy. And parenthetically, that also makes it harder for us to enter into credible arms control agreements, whether with Iran, whether with North Korea, or even Russia and China, just because the US has become a much less reliable counterparty and is likely to remain so for the, for the foreseeable future. 
So in essence, even if the U.S. remains committed to nonproliferation as a strategic goal, I think that the fact of its waning power means that it can no longer serve as the primary buttress for the nonproliferation regime. And we need to consider that as we, um, as we move forward to next steps. Eric, I don't know if you want to respond to Vipin or Rebecca or have anything else you want to throw into this before we move on to the next question. Yeah, I mean, I'll just add a couple of comments. Um, I mean, I, I, I would agree with, with both of them. And, you know, for me, I, I chose B, right, the declining U.S. credibility, mostly because, one, you know, the historical record on this I find very convincing in, in terms of the degree to which that factor mattered for when countries debated whether or not they wanted to pursue weapons. And second, as, as Rebecca got at, you know, this is just such a, it's such a hard thing to shape and control, right, because of the domestic political angle to this. And so um, given, given that it's just, it's, it's really hard to, um, to rein in, those two things combined make me quite worried, right? Um, and, you know, there's sort of, you know, Alon, you asked, like, how do we disentangle? Is this, is this President Trump? Is it something else? Um, I think, you know, like, like Rebecca said, you know, I agree that, the, that Trump has really has exacerbated a lot of these trends um, sort of toward, you know, with regard to almost direct hostility towards alliances and, and sort of a lot of the fundamental pillars of the international system. Um, but I think, you know, as, as Rebecca and others alluded to, you know, there, there's, it's not, it didn't start with him and it's going to outlast him. Um, and there's a lot, there's a broader, I think, sentiment and perhaps if it's not growing it's certainly going to be there for the foreseeable future um that within both parties that where there's sort of a, a skepticism of you know what should the u.s role in the world be um the feeling that allies do need to do more the feeling that the u.s does need to pull back um from international commitments for various for various reasons right i think those reasons differ depending on what part of the political spectrum you're on but that's there right and i think that's really what allies worry about um and so you know if i'm trying to put my in, in the, the mental sort of the mindset of any U.S. ally or partner um, who's trying to make a guess about what that strategic environment is going to look like in the future so I can decide, do I need to hedge now? Do I need to refrain? I don't know how you would possibly reach the conclusion that the U.S. is going to be more predictable or more reliable in the future. Um, that's just, you know, if you, if you take a look at those trend lines, that would be a really hard conclusion to, to reach. And I think the one final comment I'll make is that, you know, when it comes comes to, I think it's largely unlikely that any of these countries are going to be bolting for the bomb anytime soon, right? I don't think they're going to withdraw from the NPT and sort of cross that nuclear threshold. Where I'm more worried is in the hedging aspect of this, right? And um, not just on the nuclear front, but I would also argue in the missile and delivery systems front. Countries like South Korea, um, Turkey, um, and even now it looks like Saudi Arabia are investing in their indigenous missile production capabilities or SLV capabilities. Erdogan just went to a new um, facility the other day uh, to unveil, you know, a new a new facility that's going to produce rocket motors for Turkey's SLV program. So it's also those types of capabilities I think we have to keep an eye on moving forward. All right. So I think what we are going to do now is throw up the second question. Um, I'll try to be a little more efficient with time to give us a little time at the end for Q and A. Um, so heightened competition between the U.S., Russia, and China will make it harder for the three to cooperate on non-proliferation challenges, or have no, no impact on non-proliferation cooperation because they all recognize how important this is. Give everybody a chance to answer. I've answered, and I'd say at the same time, the Q&A box is starting to fill up, um, but please keep, keep uh, filling it up um, with your questions now. Um, I'll sprinkle them into the discussion and then we'll do that near the end. Um, but why don't we go ahead now, no Jeopardy music this time, um, and throw up the answers. All right. so. All right, while there's overwhelming um, view that this is going to make things harder, um, I'd like, uh, we'll ask Rebecca to go first this time in, uh, in response, um, but I would like the panelists to also, at least one of you, to maybe make a little bit of a counter argument because there seems to be such an overwhelming response here that this is going to make things harder. Is any one of you more mixed about it also, or, or maybe even if one of you answered it's not going to make things harder, I'd love to hear that too. But Rebecca, go ahead. Thanks. So I have to uh, align myself with the majority on this one. I do think that increasing great power competition is going to make it much harder for the U.S. to cooperate with Russia and China on proliferation challenges and by extension to achieve its non-proliferation goals. And 
the reason for this is twofold. I mean, in the first instance, cooperation fundamentally requires interest convergence. And we simply cannot automatically assume that Russia and or China share American preferences when it comes to nonproliferation and that they will continue to do so over the next decade or two decades, particularly as power shifts continue to play out. And I think this can be true in a broad sense, which is to say that Beijing or Moscow might simply be more tolerant of the nuclear security risks or potential for geopolitical instability that could come with a greater number of nuclear weapon states or a greater number of latent nuclear weapon states. And indeed, it's important to recognize that actually part of the reason why American grand strategy has been so laser focused on nonproliferation um, over the past 70 plus years is because nuclear weapons are the primary asymmetric means by which smaller powers can thwart or at least complicate US power projection globally. But when we think about what especially a rising China might look like, it's important not to just project the United States template of hegemony onto China and recognize that they might not actually be seeking global military primacy, which could in turn mean that nuclear proliferation is not as much of a priority or as much of a consideration or threat to Beijing as it has been to Washington during our reign as sort of the world's sole superpower. I think also in a more specific and sort of less theoretical sense, you can imagine China and Russia seeing particular advantages or disadvantages in enabling or allowing nuclear proliferation or latency in specific countries. Um, you know, we've seen this play out in the North Korea case where in many ways China is quite concerned, of course, about the North Korean nuclear program, but also has demonstrated clear limits on its own willingness to crack down. Um, and there that's, you know, immediately in China's region on its border. So when it comes comes to more distant regions like the Middle East, you know, where is China going to come out in terms of, you know, exerting its power, um, it, you know, it, as, as it relates to nonproliferation concerns um, farther from its own homeland. And then I just think briefly, the second reason for pessimism just comes from the difficulty of insulating cooperation from rivalry. And, you know, the paltry global response to COVID-19 has put this issue in really stark relief. I think if you would ask many of us a year ago, what is a likely scenario where you might see close US-China cooperation, a global pandemic would have seemed like a quite likely case. But instead, we've seen quite magnified frictions and vitriol. And so, as US-China frictions heat up, especially what we've been seeing recently in the South China Sea, as US-China relations, sorry, US-Russia relations worsen, especially with you know, the growing uh, threat of foreign interference from them into the upcoming election, I think it's only gonna become harder to work together where interests do converge. And that not only applies to a renovation of the nonproliferation regime in service of you know, what might be a new great power collusion kind of bargain, similar to the one that the US and the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War, but also the prospects for bilateral, trilateral, and multilateral arms control efforts, um, which of course then implicate vertical proliferation issues and the way that those tie into the core NPT bargain. So I'll leave it to someone else to express a slightly more optimistic take. Vipin or, or Eric, I don't know if you, either of you want to maybe weigh in. Yeah, I, I think I have a little more optimistic take about that. I mean, it's, I'm more mixed. I think uh, the prospects for U.S.-Russian arms control remain good. I think both the U.S. and Russia have an incentive to sustain a new START kind of agreement. Uh, it's good for the U.S. If you're an arms controller, you like new START. If you're a counterforce, you love new START because you can account for and limit the number of strategic nuclear weapons and systems that the Russians have. And the Russians, for financial reasons, I think don't want to get an arms race with the United States. So I think there is general convergence on strategic arms control between the US and Russia. But for the same reason, I think China is not interested in it because they're so far behind, uh, you know, and it, it's you know, we're one day after the release of the, you know, DOD military, China military power report 2020. And, you know, there's a lot of hysteria about China doubling its strategic nuclear force over the next 20 years or next decade, sorry. And, you know, that still puts them even generously today. I think if, if I give China uh, all the MERV capability and all of the SLBMs that the DOD wants to give it, China has 200 or so strategic warheads that can range con US. Uh, and the US has, and they're not all ready. China, uh, sorry, the United States has about 1400 to 1500 any given day between our ICBM and SLBM force. And then you have the stockpile, which you can upload. Uh, and so the, the, it, the, the overall balance is so far in favor of the US, even for the next decade or two, that I don't see any incentive for China to subscribe to any 
trilateral arms control agreement that would either force him to lock in inequity or be an invitation to sprint to parity, right? So we're not going to accept the latter and they're not going to accept the former. And so, you know, that's essentially the status quo where the U.S. and Russia, because of their strategic force sizes, I think have an interest in uh, some strategic arms control arrangement. Um, and I know we'd like to get tactical nuclear weapons uh, involved, but I, you know, the, the Russians aren't interested in, okay, we, we can sacrifice that uh, for a new start extension. Uh, but I also think, you know, it's laudable to try to have trilateral arms control, but, you know, the Chinese uh, force is just so much smaller at this point uh, that it, it, it may be worth giving it a shot. I just don't know what leverage we would have to bring them to the table. Uh, but that would essentially be the status quo. So I'm not more pessimistic about strategic arms control between the U.S., Russia, and China than I was four years ago, for example. I'll just make one quick comment on top of that. I know, I know we want to get to the other questions and to Q&A. I'm actually, I'm surprised at the results of this survey. I think when we originally came to that conclusion or that judgment as part of this paper, it seemed to be actually outside of the mainstream because I think you, you actually see, when, at least the things that I read, I, I feel like you see a lot of people when they talk about where competition is going to take place, particularly with China, where it is not, non-proliferation is always this thing that gets put in this box that says, yeah, this is all going to be a mess but we can all still agree that this is really important. Um, and so I thought this would be a little bit more of a controversial take on this. And I am in the more pessimistic category. Um, you know, the only other thing I would add to this, this discussion is that I think, you know, and the reason for that pessimism, I think is just because it's a giant question mark. We've never had to manage non-proliferation in this environment with China having the, the, the type of influence that it has now and is gonna have in the future. And so I think we gotta, I think we need to really take a hard look at how China might use that influence for, for, for good or for bad, for, for non-proliferation purposes, and where U.S. and China, uh, Chinese interests might, um, might align or might be in tension on a lot of these you know, proliferation cases. And I know we, we've mentioned Saudi already. So I think you know, we tried to touch on that in the report, but I think there's, there's, more, um, there's more that can be done there to, to look at. I think it's important. Yeah, I, I think, and this is important, I want to make a distinction between the arms control debate and then the proliferation China has always been much more relaxed about horizontal proliferation, right? I mean, they essentially gave Pakistan a bomb, which then got exported out as, you know, turnkey kits, a uh, different route. But, you know, the, I don't think the Chinese would have any hesitation about assisting a potential proliferator in the way that we would uh, as, a, as a U.S. policy committee uh, community. Uh, and I don't think the Chinese were happy about a North Korean nuclear weapon capability, but I also think that they would prefer a nuclear North Korea to a destabilized or weak North Korea that would result in collapse and or a refugee crisis uh, and also put American and ROC forces on their border. So, you know, given that trade-off, I think the Chinese were okay with uh, a nuclear North Korea and are okay with a nuclear North Korea that doesn't test and create the, you know, increase the risk of war uh, on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, and likewise, we can. I think with the Saudi, the, with the Saudis, you know, it, it seems like if I were the Saudis and I were the Chinese, this would be the pathway I would go to, which is, you know, the, you don't get the assistance from the U.S. You get the wink and the nod from the U.S., but you get the assistance from the Chinese or the Pakistanis. And I think the Chinese would be more than willing to do that. They're just, you know, I, I think in terms of horizontal proliferation, the Chinese have been um, much more, you know, relaxed about the the the, the, the destabilizing prospects for it. Cool. Well, with that, I think what we'll do is go to the third question. So why don't we, and this is the third and final question. We'll pop up there. So what is the most important step the U.S. can take to reduce the chances of nuclear proliferation? Uh, reduce the risks of an arms race between the U.S. and Russia, conclude deals with Iran and North Korea, um, or reinvest in alliances and take steps to address allied concerns about U.S. credibility? I'm having a hard time deciding in this one. Um, all right, so if everybody's answered, why don't we give it a second and throw this up there? And here we go. Ah, and so the overwhelming um, answer seems to be reinvesting in alliances. Um, it's also interesting, actually, this also, Eric, I'm gonna go to you first on this one, but we did have a, one interesting Q&A um, which talks about, you know, I'm pretty surprised by concerns about allies proliferating. Um, do you think the NPT has any constraining normative or legal effect for allies? 
or are you envisioning a different world that is very different, um, has a very different security context? So that's an interesting question that also very much comes together with this, uh, at least overwhelming response towards towards working with allies. But Eric, what, what did what did you think and what did you have for this answer? And maybe while you're doing it, tell us also a little bit about uh, you know, some of the key recommendations in the report, because that's in many ways where this question goes to. Yeah, thanks a lot. And I'll try and be brief because I know we're, we are kind of right up against the clock. So I, I chose B, um, you know, doing deals with Iran and, and North Korea. Um, I think it's kind of an all of the above. I think A is important in its own right, but I think it's not the most important here. And I can try and actually answer, use that to answer the question you just asked a second ago. I think the alliances piece is also, it's critical, um, but I worry that it may not be enough ultimately. Um, so I kind of focused on, you know, the deals with Iran and North Korea. And of course, those would be valuable in of their, their own right, right, to prevent a nuclear Iran and to, to sort of roll back North Korea's program. But I think, and this is one of the recommendations that we make in the report, is that when you're, when you're either returning to the JCPOA or building on it or crafting a deal with North Korea, think about how the, the, those two deals, what they mean for, for regional proliferation, right, for follow-on proliferation. In the Iran context, right, and I know, Alon, you've, you've written on this and done some work on it, um, you know, figuring out ways to, to, to adapt some of those transparency measures and limits that are in the agreement to sort of a, a region-wide framework, right, or at least figure out ways you could, you know, people talked about incorporating them into U.S. 123 negotiations, but try and broaden those out um, throughout the region. Um, and on the Iran case, excuse me, on the North Korea case, um, I would say, you know, and Vipin, I'll, I'll sort of throw this to you because I know you've written on this a lot. If we, you know, if, if we decide we're going to pursue an arms control approach to North Korea, um, you know, setting aside whatever the, the merits of that may be or what that ultimately might look like, I think we've got to think really hard about where denuclearization fits in that type of approach. And is it, is it not there anymore? Is it sort of kicks off? far down the road that it doesn't matter, because I think that's going to matter, that's going to have consequences for, for um, follow-on proliferation, it's going to have consequences for the views of allies of that agreement, and so that's not an argument not to do arms control, it's just that we have to be, I think, very deliberate uh, when, we, when we approach that. Um, and then the other, you know, recommendation that, that I do just want to touch on that we make is a little bit weedier, but nevertheless, I think is really important. Um, you know, I think we need to think about whether or not the toolkit we have today is suited for these proliferation challenges of tomorrow, right? And this, will, this kind of gets to the, the other question, right? Um, dealing with, you know, quote unquote, rogue states, um, the North Koreas, the Irans, the Syrias, the Libyas is one thing, um, but turning that toolkit towards allies and partners and China in, in a non-proliferation context is something else, right? Um, those tools can be a double-edged sword in, in those instances. They can um, work well because we have greater connectivity, but that using those tools can also damage us. And it can also come with a, with a response from those countries that is in some ways stronger than what a rogue state might be able to do, right? I think back to, in, I think it was 2018, where the US started talking about sanctions against Turkey and Erdogan came out and said he was gonna close in Turkey, right? And we can talk about whether or not, how serious that threat was, whether or not he could even do it, but that I think shows the risks of like that type of diplomatic escalation. And you could see how that could potentially play out uh, in a sort of a non-proliferation or a nuclear contest context. And so I think we've got to do an inventory. We, we talk in the report about the need to do an inventory about sources of US coercive leverage more broadly and think about how those tools apply in certain scenarios so that we don't end up sort of fumbling around in the dark when we encounter one of these problems and, and coming in thinking we're going to be able to use all these great tools only to find out, wow, those are really politically problematic. Um, and so that's one of the other, I think, sort of more and more novel approaches that we have and we offer up in the report um, that the U.S. should focus on, on moving forward. So Rebecca, let me ask you how you answer this question. By the way, I think what we might do is stretch out for our audience till 12.05, assuming that's okay for all of our panelists. But if any of our panelists need to roll, we only ask you to stay till 12, so no worries. But um, go ahead, Rebecca. Sure, thanks. Um, so I guess I will also maybe hedge a little bit here because I think there's a time horizon element to how we might answer this question. So in the short term, I think it's pretty clear that in many ways the most immediate proliferation risk comes from Iran. Um, and you could also say the further development of the North Korean nuclear and missile programs. 
And so concluding a new deal with Iran or re-entering the JCPOA and then expanding upon it in some form does seem to me to be the most important near-term step to reduce the dangers of new nuclear proliferation. Um, and of course, with DPRK, you know, starting with some kind of freeze, trying to roll back its program, moving perhaps towards a long-term objective of denuclearization, all of these things would be important achievements within the context of U.S. non-pro goals. But over the long term, I would say I align with the majority of the respondents in saying that um, the potential proliferators who are now US allies and partners, that list is in many ways longer and more concerning and maybe more consequential. And for all the reasons we talked about at the top, can only really be addressed via a revitalization of US alliances, a redoubled commitment to you know, reassuring those allies. Um, and I think that it's important maybe to zoom out a little bit um, because one of the strengths of this report is the way that it takes these kind of macro geopolitical trends and then applies them to these narrower non-proliferation questions. But I think we can also use this non-proliferation lens to consider some of the big grand strategy debates that we're all having right now, and especially now in an election year. And precisely for a lot of the reasons that Eric has already mentioned, um, as we consider these proposals for the US to move towards a more restrained grand strategy or to retrench from some of its forward uh, positions overseas, we ought to also consider what that means for our allies and what that means for our allies in the context of the these new nuclear proliferation concerns. Because one could certainly argue that it is nevertheless beneficial for the US to bring home a lot of troops from you know, South Korea, for example, or that we should um, adopt a no first use policy right off the bat if there's a new democratic administration. Um, you know, both of those might be the right answer, but, if, but as we have those debates, we should think about what they mean um, in terms of our ability to reassure our allies and what that might in turn mean for our ability to stem nuclear proliferation over the short, medium, and long term. So Vipin, let me go to you on, on this question. Yeah, uh, before I forget, Rebecca made a really important point, which I think will be in tension if uh, there's a Biden administration, which is the this, th there will be an effort to reassure allies, but the, uh, the movement towards sole purpose and no first use in the Biden administration or a Biden, potential Biden administration uh, may uh, come in tension with that effort. I mean, the allies have long opposed a sole purpose or no first use precisely uh, for this reason to uh, maintain the, the, the credibility or at least the ambiguity that the United States might use nuclear weapons first on their behalf um, in a conflict. Uh, I. I struggle with this 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 question also. I think the uh, my uh, cheating answer would be what we need to focus on the dominoes that may fall after Iran and North Korea, because I think North Korea and Iran are are essentially you know not out of the North Korea is out of the barn. Um, and I think uh, to get to Eric's point, I do think that um, you know working on arms control, but having a rhetorical endpoint of disarmament denuclearization is still useful even if it's a, a, you know, a convenient fiction uh, to get arms control uh, negotiations started and slowing the growth of the program, et cetera. But I think we realistically have to accept that once a state gets out of the bar, and we've only had one rollback, which is South Africa, uh, and that was for idiosyncratic reasons um, that we don't have time to get into. But you know, if North Korea is essentially, we have to, uh, will essentially be a de facto nuclear weapon state, uh, then we can have disarmament as the end goal the way that we do also with our Article 6 uh, NPT obligations. Uh, but an arms control agreement may be still net beneficial to regional security. And with Iran, I worry, and the three of you may be able to help solve some of this problem in a future administration, is U.S. domestic politics have made it very difficult for, I think, for us to just go back to the JCPOA. I mean, if I were Iran at this point, I would say, you know, I, I, we can't be sure that any any agreement will outlast your administration. And so I'm not giving up a hedge. And how do you reassure the Turkeys and the Saudi Arabias that uh, that Iran won't at some point reactivate uh, a, a pretty active hedge uh, through uh, it, through any agreement that it may have with the P5 plus one? Uh, and so I think the focus, yes, we have to reassure allies and we should continue to work on keeping you know, North Korea, North Korea's program from becoming a monster, Iran from, uh, you know, making the decision to act on the hedge. I think one of the best things about the JCPOA was it gave us eyes on the program, but also reduced the incentive for them to act on any intent that they may have on nuclearization. But just the mere process of withdrawing has made it very difficult, I think, uh, to get right back to where we were 
uh, in, 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 20, in 2018 when we withdrew from the JCPOA. So uh, my answer would be, let's make sure no other dominoes fall, right? This is the world we have. This is the world we have to deal with. So working with South Korea, Japan, Germany, South, uh, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, uh, the UAE doesn't bother me all that much, but I do think at some point, you know, we may have to contend with the UAE also in a couple decades. So um, there's working on the dominoes is I think how, uh, how I would approach this problem, but it's not easy. This is the world we have and it's not a pretty one. Sure. And I will just use this uh, Vipin's discussion of, of returning to the JCPOA to promote shamelessly uh, a separate report that CNAS put out about a month ago uh, on sort of a pathway either in, called reengaging Iran on a pathway back into um, either the JCPOA or some alternative. And, you know, we, we did a year of studies on this. And the first thing we found in our consultations was like, wow, this is a lot harder than just going back in. Um, but also, I mean, I think we've laid out some various choices that are practical and possible. So I'm not, I'm not optimist, super optimistic, but I'm also not super pessimistic, just that it's going to be really complicated to try and thread this needle that works for Iranian domestic politics, American domestic politics, Saudis, Israelis, Europe, Russia. It's going to be hard, harder than uh, people recognize. Um, and so with that, let me like do a few Q&As. And what I'm going to try to do is read a a few questions at once that I thought were interesting or bundle questions together um, and give folks an opportunity to, to respond. Um, I think one, one question that's come up a couple times is the issue of Taiwan. Might Taiwan use nuclear weapons at some point or is there a motivation for Taiwan to build nuclear weapons uh, given China on its doorstep? Another interesting one I've seen here um, is um, you know, sort of talking about the fact that there are also some countervailing trends that will decrease proliferation risks, uh, increased global transparency from commercial space imagery and other uh, open source big data, uh, things like that, um, you know, which uh, Eric, we do, I think in the report, talk a little bit about the positive trends that also exist and it might be worth uh, outlining some of that. Um, you know, a uh, question about how will developments in advanced conventional weapons and delivery systems affect ally and regional power decision making? Like, could these technologies offer an alternative pathway uh, for filling the vacuum left by US, uh, by less credible US nuclear umbrellas? Maybe I'll start with those three and just throw it open to our, to our panelists to discuss a little bit and maybe, and if we're very brief in our answers, we could do that again and I can throw like three or four more at you. With apologies in advance, we have 29 questions and there's no way we're getting through all that. So any one of you can jump in, Eric, maybe. So I'll, real quickly, on, sort of on the, on the Taiwan question on whether or not Taiwan would ever pursue nuclear weapons, I mean, it continues for me to be a, you know, a country to keep on our radar, a country of concern um, because of the China threat, because of um, you know, the um, uncertainty about um, you know, lingering uncertainty about US security commitments. I would note it's quite interesting. They just released those cables yesterday that detailed several US assurances that were provided in the early 1980s. It's, you know, it's interesting to note that like right around that same time frame was actually when Taiwan, you know, sort of doubled down on, on its, uh, you know, its nuclear weapons ambitions uh, in the early 1980s again. So I find that, uh, find that interesting. Um, you know, big data and, and sort of that, that aspect we do in the report, we talk about um, the value that harnessing uh, open source, big data, machine learning, some of those other big initiatives could potentially provide to assist with detecting proliferation. Um, so I, I would agree that that, that sort of seems valuable. Um, on the conventional front, like if I understand the argument correctly, couldn't the US provide some conventional capabilities to allies to make up for um, you know, the US you know, not having a presence or, or other sorts of gaps? Um, I think there's absolutely instances where that could happen. Um, my question is, um, you know, we talk about this in the report, even if the motives there are, are you know, good, right, in terms of trying to, to fill those security perception gaps and, and enable the ally, are there instances where the act, the act of supplying those technologies or in allowing a country to develop them provides countries even, even you know, inadvertently um, with some capabilities to um, that, that better position them to, to build and potentially deliver nuclear weapons? Like on the delivery systems front, um, you know, we've seen U.S. slowly lifting restrictions on South Korea's missile program over time. Um, you know, South Korea continues to talk about potentially needing a nuclear-powered sub, which would potentially, you know, you know, couched in terms of a, of a, of a you know, 
deterring North Korea, but you know, nevertheless could allow it to push on that enrichment door a little bit more. So I think there's, there's two sides of that, of that coin. Let me throw, why don't I throw some more questions into the mix and then let one of the, either Vipin or, or Rebecca like uh, take the next sort of set of rounds. So a couple that are, I think, interrelated. Um, <clears throat> one is, since the first strike use of nuclear weapons would result in immediate violent response by the rest of the world, like what advantage does a country even have by getting nuclear weapons um, in today's world? And a related question is, how does more nuclear weapon states like enhance Chinese or Russian interests or does it? Um, and uh, yeah, maybe, you know, I'll start with, I'll, I'll just throw those two because I think they're interrelated uh, into the mix if one of you wants to, to take it on. I'm happy to, to take a very brief swing at these. I think the question about what advantage do nuclear weapons provide in today's world is a really interesting one, right? Because in many ways, I think it's clear that we're moving towards a conception of power where military power itself is not paramount. We know that so much of US-China competition is going to play out in the economic realm in the technological realm, in the ideological or political realm. Um, and so even as there is this sort of sharpening military rivalry, that may not actually be the most consequential piece. Um, and similarly, it means that a range of small and middle powers can find ways to exert their influence globally, even in the absence of robust military power uh, via these other means. Now, and, and then on top of that, I would say there's just the mere fact that nuclear weapons, at least in terms of their sort of detonation use, well, they haven't actually been that useful, right? Because um, no one's used them since 1945. And so I think all of that does underscore the importance of asking the question of why would you take the risk of attempting breakout if you were, you know, a middle power, former, current U.S. allied state. Um, obviously, there's the prestige matter. There's the fact that this is still sort of the ultimate security trump card. Um, there are domestic, political, or bureaucratic factors that might nevertheless motivate states to pursue the bomb. Uh, but the stronger the nonproliferation regime is in creating disincentives to that behavior, I think the more likely it is to succeed because it, it, in many ways, you know, there is a mixed bag and that's why you know, the early President Kennedy predictions of 25 nuclear states before 1970 actually haven't been borne out. Yeah, I mean, I think the value of nuclear weapons, especially this year, uh, Kim Jong-chol is alive and Soleimani's dead. I think that, in a nutshell, is the value that nuclear weapons provide to states. And Kim Jong-un, what did Nixon call North Korea? Fourth-rate pipsqueak power. Uh, Kim Jong-un gets, you know, presidential treatment and the red carpet rolled out, or rolled out for him in you know, Singapore and Hanoi. Uh, and it elevates a state that otherwise wouldn't be elevated uh, and at least ensures regime and state survival. Uh, and I, I think that states are going to want nuclear weapons for their day-to-day -day security, at least initially, to buy themselves the berth and the space uh, to focus on other things, economic development, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I think that the mere process of states trying to acquire nuclear weapons, when I look back at the last 30 years, I think the most disruptive events in international security, except for 9-11, uh, but related then afterwards to some of American foreign policy behavior was, was tied to preventing states from acquiring nuclear weapons. So if we have more states that are trying to pursue nuclear weapons, particularly adversaries, the Syria's, Libya's, Iran's, Iraq's of the world, uh, the more disruptive it's going to be. And I, I, I don't think we're done with some of these states. I think, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Syrian program was terminated very quickly, but if, you, if we think that that eliminated uh, Assad's incentive to acquire or pursue nuclear weapons, if he could, uh, I think we're mistaken. And, you know, this gets to the Taiwan, you know, the Taiwanese case also, right? I mean, I think we're gonna have what I call, I have a, to shamelessly plug, uh, I just finished a book manuscript, which hopefully will be out in God knows when a year on the academic timeline. I mean, I have this whole category of states called hiders. Hiders are really disruptive, right? Taiwan has no option but to pursue a clandestine nuclear weapons program as it has in the past through the 1980s uh, to present a fait accompli to the Chinese and the Americans because the Americans don't want allies to get nuclear weapons for the most part. And their adversaries, the common adversary, doesn't want them to acquire nuclear weapons. And so what's their option? Their option is they have to present a capability before they're detected. Uh, and the risk is the, if they're detected, it can be a very violent end to these programs. And 
uh, I think we're going to have to contend with this uh, for, for the foreseeable future. So I'll stop there. Well, that's a good, that's a good sort of last wrap for us. Um, and I should say we're all about shamelessly promoting everybody's good work uh, at CNAS, um, at least on anything that I'm managing or running. Um, so um, I want to say maybe I'll close, I'll close with one point and then just say thank you to everybody, which is I do encourage you to read the report. Um, I had my own personal experience with the report in which the way we did it was first, you know, Eric laid out, you know, really the, the um, different key factors. And then those of us who are regional experts went in and tried to apply those key factors to different countries we were experts in. And for me personally, that particular research methodology, taking a whole bunch of things I already knew about Saudi Arabia as a Middle East guy and putting them into Eric's framework was like, wow, like that's much, more terrifying and compelling than I thought it was. So I encourage those of you who are interested in the region to really like read that section of, their, of, of different regions, read that section of the report and try to go through that process of taking countries you know a lot about and seeing if they fit into that category because it's a fascinating and interesting way to do things. Um, with that, I wanna just thank everybody for joining us. I wanna thank our colleagues at CSIS for partnership. Um, Eric, I don't know if there's anything else that you wanna say in closing. I wanna thank Rebecca and Vipin in particular for a great conversation and Eric. Um, Thanks for having us. I, yeah, I just want to say thank you to, to Vip and Rebecca for joining. Um, it was so, I was so happy when you guys uh, were able to do this. And so it's been great having you. Um, and thank you for your, for your kind words uh, about the report. And it's been fun. Everyone should read the report. It's awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think Rebecca also, you got to, you have to, because Vip plugged his book, you have to plug yours. Okay, fine. Yes. In two weeks, an open world, how America can win the contest for 21st century order, uh, co-authored by me and Mira Rap Cooper, will be on sale. It's available for pre-order on Amazon, Bookshop, wherever you like to get your books. Um, and it's it a must, must read. Yeah, Thank must you. read. Yeah, Everybody has to read this book. Thank you. Yeah, that um, Eric highlighted uh, at the outset and that I highlighted in my remarks. So thanks. Awesome. Well, that's a great way to end. Thank you again, everyone, and uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org slash join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.